Before I continue the uh, sermon on the life of Moses, I did want to say that yesterday our uh, Thanksgiving distribution and ministry was, uh, it was, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful day, and uh, Carmen did a fantastic job. Whoop, whoop! <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> but anyway, I, how, many, how many did we dist- distribute? 148 yesterday, and 40 more are coming. So praise the Lord. And there were a lot of people that were really touched. And thank you, Carmen. So Today I am reading from Exodus chapter 15, starting with verse 22, and then going straight through into chapter 16, and then jumping to chapter 17 quickly. So let me start with verse 22 of Exodus 15. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, and there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Zin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. And while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. And then going to chapter 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Zin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. 
They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are all ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there by you, before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled. And because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Israel had been delivered. Egypt's army destroyed. The Red Sea parted. And now the journey to the promised land began. But deliverance from Egypt does not mean you go straight to the promised land. First, Israel gets to the desert of Shur. And they found no water for three days. And then the water they did find was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, what are we to drink? And God in His mercy said to Moses, throw a tree in there and it'll become drinkable. And it did. And then God gave them this incredible promise. He said, if you'll obey me, if you'll follow me and and the covenant I give you, He said, I will make sure that all the diseases that touch other people will not touch you. You will be healed of all illnesses. They will not come upon you. By the way, that's a big deal. I mean, that would be a big deal now. But back then, before there were hospitals, before there were surgeons, before there were antibiotics, before there were MRI machines, that was a really, really big deal. And then God, after He gave them water and gave them this promise, He led them to an oasis called Elam. After Elam, they stayed for several days, and then it was back to the desert. Now... They have no food. And guess what the Israelites did? They grumbled. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we ate all we wanted, meat and assorted vegetables, and they had a nice salad bar. But Moses brought us out here to starve. And the Lord provides again. He gave them meat and manna. He gave them, as it says in Psalm 78, the food of angels. That is what manna is. Then Israel goes on the move again. But as usual, in the desert, there is nothing to drink. Again, Moses is attacked. The people grumble. Moses is afraid they're going to hit him with rocks. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Ain't you got no sense, Moses? And Moses struck a rock with his staff and water flowed. And God named that place Meribah. It means quarrelsome or the place of complainers. By the way, you don't want a town named after you if it's the place of complainers. Unfortunately, this was just the beginning of grumblings to come. In fact, the grumblings lasted 40 years. And they kept blaming Moses for what was obviously God's will. It says, Moses says repeatedly, why are you mad at me? It's not my idea to be out in this desert. We didn't erect that cloud leading us by day. We didn't light that pillar of fire you see at night. 
Quit scapegoating us. If you got a complaint, take it up with the Lord. The grumbling of Israel upset the Lord for two main reasons. First, it was based on a completely false rendition of history. The Israelites, with every challenge and crisis, wanted to run back to Egypt and return to the good old days of slavery. Remember how well we ate when we were slaves. Remember the meat and the vast variety of food we had to select from when we were in bondage. Remember how well the Egyptians fed us and treated us when they weren't beating us and trying to kill us. Ah, good times. I'm sure the Lord remembered 400 years of prayers and groans and pleas for deliverance. His memory wasn't so short. I'm sure Yahweh remembered the agony of slavery, not how wonderful it used to be. God has a better memory than we do. Isn't it amazing how often we look at the past with rose-colored glasses? You know why we often are so nostalgic for the past? Because it has already been overcome. It has been survived. The danger and pain of the past are not viewed with terror or the fear of the unknown anymore. Israel was not better off in Egyptian slavery than in the desert with God. God felt like that was an insult. They were not treated better by the Egyptians. Being hungry and thirsty for a few days was not the same as 400 years of oppression and beatings and death. They lost all perspective. Their memories became clouded. By the way, I hear similar grumblings like that now. I remember when America used to be great. I remember when America used to be spiritual and moral and Ozzie and Harriet were on TV every week. And Lawrence Welk ruled the airways. By the way, we're so nostalgic. PBS does reruns of Lawrence Welk every Saturday night at 6 o'clock. Lawrence Welk. My sister, by the way, loves watching it every Saturday night. It's one of our family's deepest, darkest secrets. Tell no one. Folks, I have news for you. The same news God had for Israel. The past was not better. There was nothing remotely going on then that was as bad as World War I, where millions died, often inhumane. They banned the weapons, many of the weapons from World War I, or World War II, or the Great Depression, or slavery. Or the communist purges of Stalin and Mao. Folks, 50 million people died in World War II. You tell me anything comparable to that now. Mao killed 40 million of his own people after World War II. Do you see anything like that? Our parents lived through much worse than we're living through now. My parents lived through the Great Depression. My father was in the Philippines in World War II. My, my great-grandfather my great fought in World War I, and he was never the same after that. It's not worse now. We like to catastrophize. We're like Israel. Ooh, ooh, ah. And I got news for you. Some of you won't like this. But the 1950s aren't coming back. And in many ways, that's a good thing. If you're a person of color, you don't want to see Jim Crow again. You don't long for the 1950s. And, and we are not under constant threat of nuclear war from the Russians. 
I remember when I went to, was a little kid at Fairlawn Elementary School, and we would have drills where we would get, you know, they would say, in case the Russians bomb Fairlawn Elementary School, get under your desk. You'll be safe there. By the way, I, uh, that's why I have a desk now. It's to protect me from a nuclear holocaust. Retreating to the past doesn't help us deal with the present. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day I will rejoice and be glad in it because the God of Israel and Jesus Christ is alive and well now just like He was back then. He is the great I am, not the great I was. And that leads us to the other aspect of grumbling that bothered Israel's God. They catastrophized everything. They panicked at every obstacle. I know people doing that now. How quickly they forgot God's answers to their prayers. How do you forget ten cosmic plagues? How do you forget the Nile River turning into blood? Or frogs all over you? you know, how do you forget that? How do you forget an ocean opening up and letting you walk through it? How, just how do you forget God's presence right there manifested in front of you in cloud and fire? Apparently, it takes about three days to forget, according to what we see in Scripture. And when God sweetens the water of Shur and leads them to the oasis of Elam, does Israel remember God's provision at the next new crisis? No. And after the desert of Zin, when God gives Israel meat and manna and feeds them what, what, what He feeds angels, do they remember God's care and provision and trust Him in the next crisis? No, our memories are so short, aren't they? We so easily forget what God has done. We focus on our circumstances instead of God's provision. We stop living by faith and start defining our lives by our problems. Let me tell you something. Life will never get easy. If you, you know... So many people have such unrealistic expectations about life and they're constantly disappointed and about God and they're constantly disappointed. Guess what? When you're done with the desert of Shur, you get to go to the desert of Zin. And when you're done with the desert of Zin, you get to move on to Meribah. But it's from desert to desert to desert. Israel only got to stay at the oasis of Elam a few days. They didn't get to live there or build a town there. They stayed a few days, and then it was back to the desert. Israel was delivered from Egypt. But they thought they got to skip the desert part. You never get to skip the desert part. Why the desert? Because Israel wasn't ready for the promised land. In the promised land... There are giants waiting for you. In the promised land, there are fortified cities waiting for you. In the promised land, there are Canaanites and Moabites and Philistines waiting for you, as well as milk and honey. When you get to the promised land, folks, you go to war, not rest. When you get to the promised land, you have to fight powerful enemies, not get to throw up a hammock and start rocking. Let me tell you, Christians, when you became a Christian, 
The devil didn't go, oh, I'm so happy for you. Let me help you out here. You entered war. Welcome to the war zone. Israel went straight from Egypt into the desert and not to Canaan. Because if they'd gone straight to Canaan, they would have been slaughtered. They weren't ready to fight for God. They weren't ready to fight with God. They couldn't even deal with thirst and hunger for a few days, much less take on giants. God's goal in leading Israel to the desert is to teach them total dependence on Him and to wean them from Egypt. Because the harder task for the Lord, folks, is not getting Israel out of Egypt. It's getting Egypt out of Israel. Our outer shackles are much easier for God to deal with than our inner ones. And you know what I'm talking about. Folks, you can't go to and take the promised land while you're still longing for Egyptian slavery. You can't take the promised land while you're still hungering for the bondage of the old life. You can't take the promised land still cultivating an appetite for Egyptian leeks and onions instead of hungering for manna from heaven. You can't take the promised land when you're still lusting for Egypt's food and your old masters. You can only serve one master, Jesus said. It's either God or it's Pharaoh. It's either the promised land or it's Egypt. you got to pick one. So what do you do when you find yourself in the desert? You basically have two choices. You can, according to what we see in Scripture today, you can talk to God or you can talk about Him. The first is called prayer. The second is called grumbling. And hear this. The content of prayer and the content of grumbling can be exactly the same thing. You can pour out all your complaints to God, all your anguish, all your anger, all your desires, but then you listen to Him and you draw close to Him. Or you can take out your complaints and your anguish and desires somewhere else and you can fall away from Him. It's not your problems or your complaining that draws you to or from God. David in the Psalms did the first. Many others have done the second. And when you cry out, know this. God will give you manna in the desert. He will give you water from the rock. He will give you food for your soul. There was a Christian lady who did an interview with Leadership Magazine. She's quadriplegic, paralyzed basically from the middle of her chest down. And they asked her, what does it take for you to live beyond these obvious physical limitations. And she answered it this way. In a way, I'm somewhat blessed by my circumstances because I'm forced to lean on God whether I like it or not. By the way, that's what the desert does. You're forced to lean on God whether you like it or not. My choices are limited, she said. Let me give an example, and this is truly the fuel that fires all my days. For the most part, I have to be in bed by 8 o'clock at night because of my physical condition. I used to hate that. Because when I'm lying in bed paralyzed, gravity is my enemy. I'm more limited than when I'm sitting in a wheelchair. At least in a wheelchair, I got, I've got shoulder muscles and biceps I can move. But lying in bed, I can't move at all. 
It used to be so frightening, and it made me feel so claustrophobic. I couldn't move except to turn my head on a pillow. It really was a bed of affliction for me. Some years ago, she said, somebody put a, bla a plaque by my bedside, and it read, be still and know that I am God. And she, at first she wasn't sure whether that was a joke or not. I have no choice but to be still. But she said, I, suddenly it hit me that lying here in this bed just might, and be, having to be physically still, might have been an invitation by God to go and experience another kind of stillness that is deeper. She said that I decided that if I'm to believe God at His word and if He is with me in the pit of hell, then there's something far more beautiful that can come out of these ashes than I can possibly imagine. Now, many years later, she says, it's not a bed of affliction anymore. It's become an altar. My bed has become an altar of praise. This physical enforcement of stillness causes something in my life that wouldn't have happened if I were on my feet running around. Perhaps I'd be putting the third kid to bed or folding the second load of laundry or emptying the dishwasher, but I wouldn't be praying and I would not be praising God. Brothers and sisters, some of you are in the desert today and your main task is to find out what is God giving you in the desert. Feed on Him. Feed on the manna for your soul. It may come as an irrational peace that passes all understanding. It may be a life-changing insight. It may just come as joy that has no physical props. Or as a closeness to God that saturates your soul with His love. But if you eat God's manna in the desert, your soul will expand. You will become more like Jesus. You will begin to see and experience the promised land. The question for a lot of us here today is, have you cultivated a taste for manna? Or is your heart still set on the leeks and onions of this world? Or what are you trying to fill your soul with? Really? For real, for real. Ernest Campbell was a famous Presbyterian preacher. I actually got to, to see him at a Presbyterian camp meeting. I don't know that they have Presbyterian camp meetings anymore either. But he told the story about a woman who went into a pet store to buy a parrot. She wanted a parrot that could talk. The owner of the store sold her a bird and guaranteed that this bird would speak. She thanked him, took the bird home, and placed him in a cage. Two days later, she returned to the store to say that the parrot had not uttered one peep. Did you put a mirror in the cage, the pet store manager asked. Sometimes parrots like to preen themselves in front of a mirror, and that helps them begin to talk. So the woman bought a mirror, took it home, and placed it in the cage. The next day, she returned to the store. No luck. The parrot had not even tried to talk. Try a ladder, the manager said. Sometimes parrots like to climb ladders, and that stimulates them to talk. So the woman bought a ladder and tried that, but to no avail. Still not a peep. Try a swing, said the store owner. Parrots like to amuse themselves on a swing, and that will surely do the trick. Dutifully, the woman bought a swing and placed it in the cage with her bird. The next morning, she came back to the store. My parrot died last night, she said, sadly. 
I'm truly sorry to hear that, said the manager. Did the parrot say anything at all before he died? Yes, he did, came the reply. Just before he breathed his last, he said, don't they sell any pet food down to that pet store? <laughs> Ernest Campbell then points out how readily we buy mirrors in which to primp, ladders on which to climb higher, swings through which we seek pleasure, but where is the food for our souls? So often we feed ourselves everything but what we need the most. Have you noticed? Our infinitely hungry souls cry out for the infinite love of God. And what do we do? We buy a television. Or a car. Or a new video game. Or seek some new thrill. We keep eating leeks and onions. And we spiritually starve ourselves to death. But the desert usually forces us back to manna. Back to the only love that can fill us up. Back to the only waters that can slake our thirst. The second thing you can do in the desert. And since it's Thanksgiving coming, I'll work this in. The second thing you can do in the desert that Israel did not do is to be grateful for what you have instead of complaining about what you don't have. Israel had a long list to be grateful for. Let's try freedom. They, were great, they should have been grateful for freedom. They should have been grateful for deliverance from Egyptian slavery. They should have been grateful for God choosing them to be His special people. They could have been grateful that the Lord provided for them in abundance and water in the desert and that God provided both water and manna and meat for 40 years. Every day. Food, by the way, they didn't have to work for. They didn't have to grow or ground flour to make. Dough they didn't have to knead or cook over a fire. All they had to do was just pick it up fresh every morning and eat it. It was the precursor to McDonald's. By the way, and, and the quail says... The quail, they wanted meat. The quail came flying in by the millions. They came and landed in camp and said, here, eat meat. <laughs> and this part right here, this left side is more tender than the right. Eat that first. They never went hungry. They never died of thirst. Yet they chose to grumble instead of be grateful. You know, like spoiled children, they wanted everything. They wanted a perfection that doesn't exist. Their perfectionism killed their gratitude. Think about it. In Egypt, they wanted freedom. But in freedom, they wanted the security of Egypt. In Egypt, they wanted the milk and honey of the promised land. But on the way to the promised land, they wanted Egyptian cuisine. They never were happy about anything they got. These perfectionists caused, their perfectionism caused them to, to find fault with everything. Nothing was good enough. Do you know people like that? They have the gift of grumble. You know, there's probably somebody out there sitting right now going, I could do better than him. Like I said, Thanksgiving is coming. And we know one of the sad, sad things that scientists and psychologists have discovered 
is that there is no direct correlation between abundance and gratitude. Just because you have more stuff doesn't make you more grateful. The truth is, the more we have, the, le the less likely we are to be grateful to the God who gave it to us. We live in a time, we live in the most affluent society in the history of the world. Let me ask you, do people seem happier? Do people seem more grateful and thankful? You know, some people are not grateful because they feel entitled. Their attitude is, I am owed. I'm owed, I'm owed, it's off to work I go. Why am I owed? Because I am me and I am wonderful. Others are not grateful because they feel like, they genuinely feel like they've earned everything they ever got. It's like the Bart Simpson, you know, on one of the shows in which I was doing researching for this sermon. It was like Bart's, Bart prays grace. And he says, Dear Lord, we bought all this stuff with our own money, so thanks for nothing. Apparently having the gifts to work was not considered a gift. Or the health to work was not considered a gift. Or the opportunity to work was not considered a gift in Bart's mind. You can't be grateful and entitled at the same time. You can't be grateful and feel like you deserve everything you got at the same time. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 2? He wrote, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but in their thinking, their minds became futile. You see that connection? Feudal thinking is when people perceive themselves to be entitled and God's lucky to have them, or that when they are owed, instead of being people who are receivers of totally free, undeserved grace every moment, what Paul is saying is that the heart of sin among human beings starts with ingratitude to God. Because once you go, eh, God, what is no big deal. You can go a lot of directions after that. We have so much to be thankful for. But when we get more blessings than we can count, often we stop paying attention and take things for granted. We do. The Hebrew word for gratitude means recognizing the good. Are you looking for what you have? Or are you looking at what you don't have? That will determine your gratitude quotient. Are you looking at what you have or are you looking at what you want? That will determine your gratitude. Are you grateful or are you grumbling? To be grateful, truly grateful, you must not only recognize what you have, but what, that what you have comes from the incredibly generous heart of God. To be truly grateful, you have to realize that the good things in your life are not accidents, they are blessings. To be truly grateful, you have to realize that the good things in your life are not coincidence, but pure grace. They come from the hand of God. The Bible says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not His benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things. Don't forget 
don't forget. You know, the Bible, a lot of times, the Bible says, that's exactly what God says to Israel and to the people of God in the New Testament too. It's, it's remember, remember, remember. Our memories are so short. Even in the desert, God's grace is true. The people of Israel, in the last line I read, said something in rebellion, and yet it, it is a theologically correct question they should have been asking. They asked, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord with us or not? That is a great question. <clears throat> Paul Warnke, a Christian psychotherapist, was addicted, despite his faith as a Christian, to pornography. Oh, he knew the stuff he watched on film and in magazines was junk. He knew it wasn't good for him. That didn't stop him. He even knew worse that it was all a lie. He wasn't watching love. He was watching acting at love. And he knew there were hang-ups in his life that needed fixing, that fueled his addiction, that had little to do with sex. But that pornography felt like a quick fix. Pornography was his drug of choice. And one day, God delivered Paul Warnke. One day, God found him and healed him. And you know where he found him and healed him? In a porno theater. Listen to Warnke's own words that day. He said, after he'd watched the film, he said, what am I doing here? What am I looking for? I leave feeling more empty than ever before in my life. As I walk to the rear door, I hear the cries of mock dramatic ecstasy. Oh God, oh God, Jesus. Out of the mouths of anything but babes, it assaults my ears. And suddenly he realizes something. The Spirit of God is talking to him through those moans of ecstasy. It's you, God, isn't it, he says. You, even in this place where I could never really find you, you call out to me here through her voice. He said, and in that instant, he said, I realized my longings for passion and abandon and love and in life drew me here. But I could never find that passion and abandon in this place and in this, and in this way. This evil junk is truly a perversion of my deepest desires. My deepest longings cannot be filled in this theater. He said, I walk into the hot sunlight, a compulsion that has resisted six years of therapy and 15 years of prayer, dies in the time it takes to walk to the Port Authority bus terminal. Can you imagine that? God delivering a man from his porno pornography addiction through the words of a porno actress on the screen taking the name of God in vain? Being delivered from pornography in a porn theater? I never cease to be amazed at the grace of God. I never cease to be amazed at how relentlessly He searches for us. Everywhere, anywhere. See, here's the point. Deserts do not stop God. 
God finds us in our deserts, even the ones of our own making. He finds people in bars. I can tell you people that got saved drunk in a bar. He finds people in the streets. He meets people in high places and low. He seeks us even when we know, do not know we are being sought. I've known people getting saved during a drug overdose. In fact, that person attends church here. That person was in Vietnam, and they were, had overdosed on cocaine and heroin, and they were dying, and they saw themselves descending into hell, and suddenly the hand of Jesus reached out and saved a man just before he descended into death and hell and saved him. He's married to someone that used to be on staff here and retired recently. I know of a young man that got saved in the front seat of a station wagon. When he got in that station wagon, he was going to get high on weed. And the next thing he knew, he got saved. He's preaching to you right now. Again, do I recommend heroin and cocaine and porn and weed? No. No. But deserts... Do not stop God and His grace. They don't. Not even the ones we make. God specializes in deserts. And it's critical because, folks, some of you are in a desert right now. And if you're not in the desert right now, let me make you a guarantee. You're going to get in one. And it's important to remember that God shows up even in the most unlikely of places even as people are grumbling and whining, even as people who don't deserve a thing, He still comes in and He finds us. Is God here or is He not? Israel asked. Is the Lord hunting us with grace or is He not? To those of you in the desert today, let me say it again. Let God find you in the desert and let Him give you living water and manna from heaven, even there, especially there. Start, stop grumbling and start praying. Stop grumbling and look around you and see what you have instead of what you don't have. Stop grumbling and start feeding on manna. And start drinking from the rock. And you will not only survive the desert, you just may find that you bloom in it. Thanksgiving's coming. But Thanksgiving should not be the reason we're thankful. Thanksgiving should be a lifestyle, not a day. If you have to wait for the Detroit Lions to get your praise on, you're in trouble. If you have to wait till a big, fat, succulent turkey with green beans and mashed potatoes, if that's what it takes to make you thankful, you are not looking around enough. I am calling us, calling myself, to say, are we recognizing? Are we recognizing? <laughs> recognizing. You understand. Recognize. All right. <laughs> I'll explain it to you white folks later, okay? <laughs> God is good. And we're here. And there's so much to be grateful for. 
you know, the shelter, the life, you know, the fact that you're here breathing. There's so much. But those are, those are just the preliminaries, the real stuff. Is we should be thankful for Jesus Christ. We should be thankful for salvation, free, given in grace that we don't have to earn and could never earn in a million years. That's what we should be grateful for. We should be grateful that the Holy Spirit is here making Jesus alive and shedding His love abroad in our hearts. We should be thankful that we have heaven waiting for us and that no matter what happens to us in this world, we are going to a place where we will live forever and ever in a state of ecstasy that goes beyond our imagining. Even in a desert, you can praise God for that. Even in hell or a bed of affliction, you can praise God for that. May we praise God and look for Him in deserts because He's very good at deserts. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm looking at some faces going, yep, I've been in a desert for all my life. God is finding me in the middle of this thing. And He's healing me and He's taking me new places. And He's lifting me up. I know some of you. I get to walk with some of you on that. It's a privilege to watch God meet people in the desert. So anyway, I'm done. I praise the Lord. Let's praise the Lord, all right? <laughs> Amen.